0: You could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11 this morning. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. 11 was a few weeks ago. As you're turning there, I'm sure Colby and Samantha will cover your prayers as Samantha's due date is this week, as I understand, and so uh, keep them in, in prayer here as they're. Expecting here their, their first child and for the Lord to be with them and um, is uh, His grace to be upon this, uh, this particular birth here. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read the, the whole chapter of focus this morning, will be verses 4 through 7. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envies not. Charity vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, does not, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abides faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this chapter 13 and zero one on verses 4 through 7, we know that You desire to transform us through Your Word. And so as this description of love and Your love, the love of Calvary is described to us, Lord, we pray that we would see our insufficiency in the flesh. See our insufficiency apart from Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we would see the true beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true, true beauty of God the Father. The true, true beauty of the Holy Spirit who bears these qualities and has displayed them upon us. That by faith, we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ, having been renewed in our minds, and put off the old man. And I pray that the world would know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for you and for each other. We pray this morning for our government leaders, and we know that we are commanded to pray for them and for their salvation so that we may live a quiet and peaceable life. And so we do so this morning, Lord, asking for your wisdom to be in their minds. Lord, more importantly, we ask for uh, their hearts to be changed according to the knowledge of the Son of God. And they would come to the Lord Jesus and they would fulfill their respective duties here as called servants of you. Simply, rather than simply servants of the state. Lord, we also pray for our missionaries around the world, and we do think of the Olets and serving in Quebec, and we ask, Lord, that your hand would be upon their ministry. We thank you for the opportunities through these different ways of media to broadcast the life changing truths of Jesus Christ, and this morning we pray that uh, your word would go forth and it would touch hearts. Thank you, Lord, for how you're using your word in a variety of, 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 of means and mediums, Lord, and we know that the power is not in the mediums, but it's ultimately in your very words, and so we ask that it would accomplish all that you have it to do. Thank you, Lord, for those you've touched with your word, and those, Lord, you've, you've brought into the fellowship of your son and your people, and we pray that you continue to help them grow. Give encouragement to the Olets, as They've had many uh, discouragements along the way. It's a it's a dark place. It's a it's a heavy place uh, spiritually. It's, it's 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 very dry, but Lord, you have um, you your, your gospel is more powerful than that and is beyond that. And Lord, we thank you for how you've shown your signs of your Spirit there. Use your Word this morning now to translate us into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. For sake of context, we are in a section of Corinthians that oversees here God-centered others serving word-driven worship from chapter 11 through chapter 14. And we began in chapter 11 with some of the issues that were going on in their gatherings and some of the selfishness that was going on and the drawing attention to, to individuals instead of to Lord Jesus Christ. And then we saw that displayed again in chapter 12 as Birch worked through, uh, chapter 12, I believe verses 1 1- through uh, one through twelve, or one through ten, or so, and then the rest of the chapter, the following uh, a couple Sundays later, here on on the gifts that God has given the body of Jesus Christ and how those gifts are to be used to build up and edify and serve the church. Then we're going to see in chapter fourteen in a couple weeks the gathering together of the Corinthian church and how again they are trying to bring the spotlight upon themselves instead of upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds them to use their gifts to edify and build up the church. But sandwiched in between this, this section on worship, the section on getting together, the section on one anothering here is chapter 13. And we saw last week the context in chapter 13 verses 1 through 3 is that all the spiritual gifts are nothing without love. Without love is the driving force behind it. They're empty. They are nothing. And Paul has said this over and over. In verse 13 he says, Without love, i become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You're just obnoxious. And then verse 2, and have not charity, I am nothing. And verse 3, and have not charity, it profits me nothing. And we said we can say what we want to say. We can know what we want to know. We can even serve however we want to serve. But without love, it's pointless. It's empty. And now in verses 4-7, through seven. He's going to take love, and He's not going to define it, but He's going to describe it. Diamonds, of course, are one of those jewels that are so beautiful and and, and so sought after, but a diamond is nothing without all the different facets that catch the light. Uh, when I was in Myanmar, I was talking to Linda Champion. And some of you may know she, uh, she was involved in, in selling diamonds uh, uh, several years ago in order to help provide money for college for her, for her kids. And, and, and she, she, she had some training in gemology. And we were talking about the jewels that were in Myanmar. I think Myanmar produces 90% of the world's rubies. And it's just a, it's just a, 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 a very uh, uh, resource-rich place for, for gems and, and, and jewels. And I'm told that a diamond that is cut in a particular form that probably many of you ladies have on your ring is cut in the, in the, in the cut of, 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 of brilliance. And a diamond, a brilliant is a, stone, a diamond or gemstone cut in a particular form with many facets to have exceptional brilliance. And the, the, the brightest cut, I believe, right now, unless they've uh, superseded this one, is called the cut of, of brilliance. And, and, and it shows 58 different facets that as you turn the diamond, it catches the light and reflects the light. And the shape resembles a cone. And, it, and, 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 and as much light as possible for that diamond to reflect is shown as you put that against the black velvet and you turn the light or you turn the diamond and so it is with love here because Paul will begin to take the diamond of Calvary love and he will hold it up to the light and we begin to turn it and he will say, it's not that, it's this, it's not that, it's this. And he lets us gaze on the beauty of love which is set in the heart of God. In this section, if you're if you are a student of the Scriptures, you'll notice that there are 15 Present tense verbs. Some of the objects here that Paul describes a love that he has just insisted is the basis of Christian behavior. Fifteen present tense verbs, which tells us that love is an action that flows out of a right heart attitude. Verses one through three, the right heart attitude. That love is not just something you hope for, or one day will get to, or that you had someday, but is a continuing effect. It is present tense. It is to be continuous. And in these verses here, verses 4-7, through you can break it down into three parts. It begins with two positive expressions of love. Patience and kindness. And then following that are eight verbs expressing what love is not like or does not do. I.e. the example of the Corinthians. And then a a, a positive verb in verse 6. And then finally, the third part here is a staccato of four verbs. Boom, 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 boom. That each have the object of uh, uh, the phrase, all things. And they pick up the cardinal Christian virtues that are over and over in the New Testament faith, hope, and love. And then circle all the way back to patience. That he began in verse 4. Oswald Chambers said, God is chiseling out in us the image of His Son Jesus. He says God's batterings and that chiseling always come in commonplace ways and through commonplace people. Only love for God released by His love for us can keep such faith and hope alive and in control of our daily lives. Friends, as you hear these Scriptures that are read and you probably are so familiar with them having heard them in weddings and other places and and cross-stitch on the wall, I want you to understand that this comes out of a messy church. That this is real life here. That this is not a, an, a, an ideal, this is not a, 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 a simply just a, uh, 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 oh, I hope we get there someday, but this is the application to all the problems that were in the Corinthian church that Paul says is at the core of it. Jonathan Swift, who wrote Gulliver's Travels, it was a satire on the British government, said this, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And so much of that is true with the church of Jesus Christ, isn't it? So much knowledge. So much speaking. So much even service. But so little love. We have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. That was a very good description of the Corinthian church, wasn't it? In fact, if we want to see the context here, verses 4-7, through we're reminded in the Corinthian church that Paul had told them in 1 Corinthians 8-1 that they had knowledge and that knowledge was puffing them up. But love, Paul said, builds up. That the purpose of spiritual gifts is the edification of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. To profit by. In chapter 14, verse 3, He'll tell the Corinthians, but he that prophesies speaks to men to edification and exhortation and comfort. That's the purpose of the gift. Not just to spout off knowledge. And Verse 5 of chapter 14, he says, I would, rather, I would, I would that you all spoke with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For greater is he that prophesied that he speaks with tongues, except he may interpret, that the church may receive edifying. In chapter 14 and verse 12, he says this, Even so, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 17, he says, For you verily give thanks well, but the other is not edified. He says you're missing it with the spiritual gifts. And verse 26, so he reminds them, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm, has a doctrine or teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done to edifying, to building up. This means we must not think of ourselves and think of our guests, but of others, and this demands love. The Corinthians were impatient in the public meetings. Verses 29-32 through 32 of chapter 14. But love would make them long-suffering. They were envying each other's gifts. But love would, re, would shrink that envy. They were puffed up with pride. Paul has said this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. and 1 Corinthians four, eighteen and 19. And then also in chapter 5, verse 2. But love removes pride and self-puffing up. whether replaces it with a desire to promote others. Paul said in Romans twelve, ten: "...be kindly affection one another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another." Warren Wearsby writes, At the love feast in the Lord's table, the Corinthians were behaving in a very unseemly manner. If they had known the meaning of real love, and he's referring to 1 Corinthians 11, they would have behaved themselves in a manner pleasing to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, they're even suing one another. But 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love does not seek its own, is not easily provoked; thinks no evil. And this is what was going on in the church in Corinth. They were rejoicing. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. But in 1 Corinthians 5, the Corinthians were boasting about sin in their church. Rampant, adulterous sin. What I want to see here in verse 4 is this. Charity or love suffers long and is kind. First of all, to begin this section of the description here of love, looking at the facets of the diamonds of God's love that is to be reflected in our lives, is, is this idea, love is patient and kind, that love is rooted in God's love for us. Love is rooted in God's love for us. Here, the meaning here of, of patience is uh, 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 translated here in, in verse 4, suffering long means to bear up under provocation without complaint. Have you been provoked lately? How about today? How about last week? Scripture here says that love bears up without complaint under that. It, 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 it is a patience. It is a forbearing. The idea here is to be patient in suffering. And then he says this. <clears throat> love, uh, Charity suffers long and is kind. We read that four-letter word, kind, and we kind of just simply relegate it to children's Sunday school. But kind still applies to adults. It's not just little children needing to be kind to each other. And so what is kindness? The idea of kindness is is, is, is seeking another person's joy. It is has to do with reaching out through deeds that, co- that demonstrate compassion and mercy. The great lexicon explains. You're wondering, well, I thought you said love is rooted in God's love for us. They don't see God in this. Well, I want to take you to Romans chapter 2 and show you that these ideas, that love is long-suffering, that love is kind, is rooted in God Himself. Romans chapter 2. In Romans 2... Verse 2, Paul says, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And now he talks about the self-righteous person, the self-righteous lost person. In verse 3 and he says, And think ye this, O man, that judges them which do such things and does the same, that you shall escape the judgment of God. And notice what he says this in verse 4. Or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. The riches of his what? The riches of his goodness, that is his kindness, his tender mercies, the riches of His forbearance and long-suffering. That's the nature of God. He is good, He is kind, He is forbearing, He is long-suffering. He has not held our sins against us in Christ. So love is rooted in God's love for us. On the one hand, we have God's loving forbearance it's demonstrated by His holding back His wrath toward human rebellion. And make that personal my rebellion. And then we have His kindness that's found in the, in the, in the, in the expression of Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, in His mercy. And so Paul describes love here, and he's really describing a love that's rooted in God. God who through Christ has shown Himself to be forbearing and kind toward those who deserve judgment. The implication of that, and John will say this in 1 John over and over, is that the love that God has shown for us, His patience, His kindness, is how His people are to be toward others. So back to 1 Corinthians 13, If love is rooted in God's love for us, then love cannot be impatient and unkind. If you are impatient and unkind, it's incompatible. They cannot live together. Love is rooted in God's love for us. Notice what he says in the rest of chapter 13, verse 4 and 5 and 6. He says, Charity... Envy's not. Charity vaunts not itself. Is not puffed up. The second thing we see, that not only is love rooted in God's love for us, if it's rooted in God and we desire to be like God, we desire to be godly, we desire to be Christ-like, then it also would follow then that love says no to anything that is not that way. Love says no to ungodliness. Love says no to the flesh. And now Paul will give the negatives of what love is not. And he's drawing up in the Corinthian believers' minds all the things that they were. He's helping them remember how incompatible who they were acting like and what they were, how they were behaving themselves is incompatible with, with love. And so secondly, love says no to the flesh. It says no to the flesh. You're going to have these two positive expressions at the beginning of verse 4, and now are going to be followed by seven verbs that show how love does not behave. And the first five seem to be taken right out of the case file here for the Corinthians. Paul was saying to them, You must have love. Without it, you are simply not behaving as Christians. And what is love? It is to behave in the way that you're the opposite of what you're doing, is what he's saying to them. And first he says, love does not Envy. It does not envy. It envies not. It is not jealous. It is not jealous. Paul has displayed the problem with the Corinthians in the first few chapters, hasn't he? With the disunity that's going on with the envy. The jealousy that's happening. The strife that's coming up and paul has they have raised up people uh, uh uh who they say are 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 against paul and rivals uh who are who are rivaling for the affection of the church and and paul says that love does not allow fellow believers to be in rivalry or competition love does not look at other believers as threats love is not looking for exalted vaunted positions Instead, what does love do? It seeks the opposite. Love asks the question, how best do I serve these for whom Christ died, no matter what my desires are? You see, what Paul is saying is, we cannot be jealous and we cannot love and be like Christ at the same time. Cannot happen. It's possible in this Corinthian church that was a smattering of people from a variety of of, of social statuses that there were some who may have been better off financially. And there's some who might have been poorer off in that congregation. And it's very possible that uh, 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 those whom, who There might be some who are poor in that congregation who had more spiritual gifts or, or a greater power in their spiritual gifts than, than others. And that would have been new territory in a world that looked at one's money situation as your exaltation. And Paul says, love teaches us not to envy, but to ask how best do I serve these people whom Christ died, whatever my own desires. Listen, if you see an individual that you see is a threat to your status, a threat to who you are, understand that's not coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not compatible with love. That's not compatible with a Spirit-filled life. Love is not envious. is not jealous. But notice he says, love is also not boastful. Not boastful. He says that envy is not itself. Charity vaunts not itself. Vaunt—it's a word. That word, boast—it's uh, a word for boast. It means to behave as a braggart, to be a windbag. You ever talk to somebody and you're telling them a story and they got to one up you, right? Oh, that's nothing. They have a—they have an insecurity, desire to call attention to, to to themselves. And what has happened within the Corinthian church is. They have described themselves as having wisdom. Of having knowledge in chapter 8, verse 2. Of being spiritual in chapter 14 and verse 37. He says, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So you say you're a person of the Spirit. You say you're a spiritual person. Paul says, then obey the Word of God. And Paul is saying it is not possible to be a person who boasts and loves at the same time. You find yourself feeling a need to exalt yourself. You have just found yourself in a place where you are not loving. They're incompatible. The one action wants others to think highly of themselves, whether deserving or not. The other cares for none of that, but only the good of the church, edifying the church. You cannot boast and want notice And love at the same time. Then Paul says, Charity vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, is not proud. That word is not puffed up means to have an exaggerated self-conception. Puff up to make proud. An exaggerated Uh, uh, self-conception. And this applies to personalities that are shy and personalities that are outgoing. Doesn't it? Pride just displays itself in different ways, doesn't it? When you're looking down on people, you're proud. Whether you're a shy person or an extroverted person, right? Or somewhere in between. Pride here, it's incompatible with love. Because again, it has a respect concern for yourself instead of the welfare of others. It is obsessed with my status and the attention that I receive or don't don't want to receive here and, and 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 someone has asked this question how much behavior among believers and even ministers is actually attention seeking designed to impress others with one's own supposed importance paul is saying pride is incompatible arrogance acting to impress others is incompatible with love in fact peter will put it this way in first peter 5 verse 5 through 7 peter says this Likewise, the younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another. Submit one to another. And be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Pride is incompatible with love. Then Paul says this, he says, does not behave itself unseemly. That verb unseemly is the idea of being rude, of behaving shamefully or disgracefully. That a Christian love cares too much for the building up of the church to behave in an unseemly way. You cannot be rude and love, can you? That's the Christ life, the way of Calvary love, or the way of the self-life. And then he says, seeks not her own. It's the idea of demanding your own way. Demanding your own way. This is an item that echoes other parts of the letter. You can see in chapter 10, verse 24, this idea of demanding your own way has come up. Chapter 10, verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's. Well being. And then verse 33 Even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. It doesn't seek its own. If you hear your heart saying, I need to find myself, you're missing the point of the Christian life. That is not the highest good. The Christian life is not enamored with self-gain, self-worth. To the contrary, it seeks the good of one's neighbor or even enemy, as Jesus Christ did. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul describes this one-mindedness, this love, and this way he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. He's not, what he's not saying is be a busybody. Know everybody's business. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, serve others, not yourself. He says in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. We cannot demand our own way and love. We cannot be self-centered and others-oriented, can we? Of course, there is no greater example for us than our Lord Jesus Christ in this. Right? Isaiah fifty-three frames this out for us in the Old Testament. Mark ten forty-five describes the servant Lord Jesus who did not come to serve, who did not come to be served, but came to serve and give up his life as a ransom for many. Who gave himself for us? Paul will say over and over. Galatians one four, Galatians two twenty. Who gave himself? And this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is all about. It does not seek its own. It seeks others. We cannot demand our own way and love with Calvary love. Then Paul says that love is not irritable. is not easily provoked. If you find yourself with a quick temper, you have an issue of not loving. If you find yourself easily angered, easily irritated, there's a deeper heart issue that's going on, isn't there? He says that love is not easily provoked. And the idea here is that someone is provoking you. The attempt has been made. But there's a difference in your response. Calvary love does not respond with anger. The one who loves is not easily provoked to anger by those around him or her. Or do those people intentionally or unintentionally meant to provoke you to anger? Isn't that, again, what verse 4 is about? It suffers long and is kind. We cannot be irritated and have Calvary love. They're incompatible. And then, Paul says this, thinks no evil. Think still wrong. The idea here is literally, does not reckon the evil. Have you reconciled your checkbook before? Or have you looked at a to-do list and reconciled to make sure what you have done and what's still to be done? Reckon the evil. It's an accounting term. It's a term that's used in other places scripture of Scripture of, of God in 2 Corinthians 5.19 not reckoning our sins against us because of Christ. The one who loves does not take notice of the evil done against them in the sense that they're keeping records. They want to settle the score. You remember what Luke records in Luke's gospel in Luke 23 verse 34 as the Savior is on the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Paul's answer here about love is that love does not keep record of wrongs. does not keep a private file of personal grievances. I knew somebody that, that counted and, and, and cataloged the grievances of another person and literally kept them written down. Friends, that is not compatible with love. There's not that accounting here. Love does not... Keep records of wrongs. I remember as a kid, I had an uncanny ability to do this. Remember what so and so brother or so and so sister did four or five weeks ago, four or five years ago, and then look for the opportunity to pay them back that way, right? We just do that more in more sophisticated ways as adults, don't we? More subtle more sanitized ways, it's still the same sin, isn't it? It keeps no record of being wronged. We cannot keep score and have Calvary love and a Spirit-filled life at the same time. And notice what he says in verse 6 here as he comes to the end of these negatives here. He says, Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It's the idea, he does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. And the idea here is that it rejoices when the truth, righteousness, and holiness wins out. And sometimes we can look at that person who we do not have love for and we can see when they fall or see when evil happens to them and we say, aha, they got what they deserved, right? Aha, I knew it was... Ha-. I mean, look, this is what happens in the political sphere, doesn't it? That's the world. That's not Christ's followers. We say, aha, gotcha, right? Love does not rejoice in that. But love does rejoice when we see evidences of the image of God created in Christ Jesus after true holiness. The idea here of a person full of Christian love joins in rejoicing on the side of behavior that reflects God. Rejoices in the victories, however small they may be, that are gained, the forgiveness that is offered, the acts of kindness that are seen. And when a person refuses to take delight in the evil or the fall of another, or rejoice when they when they when they see a, a punishment happening that they've been waiting for a long time. When that happens, we're not seeing love. It does not seek to make itself distinctive by tracking down and pointing out what is wrong. It gladly sinks its own identity to rejoice with others at what is right. Someone has written. So Paul can say this in verse 7, It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It is a character of love to be long-suffering. There is nothing that love cannot face. It is not naive, but there is a power in love that enables it to be long-suffering. And so Paul concludes these descriptions of love here with an idea of what he said before. It bears up. It always perseveres. There's a tenacity to love. And it is not some far-off future thought of, okay, one day I'll be able to be tenacious about love, or I wish I could be this way. It brings Calvary love into the present. And it practices it right now. it enables, because of the confidence it has in the future, of our living hope in Christ, enables love to live in every kind of circumstance and pour itself out on behalf of others. We see this in Paul's ministry, don't we? And so with this last part here, we see thirdly that love pursues specifically with eyes of faith. Love doesn't give up. Love doesn't lose faith. Love is always hopeful. Love endures through every circumstances. Because remember, going back full circle, love that's rooted in God a love that is touched by the never-ceasing love of God in Christ, Romans 8.39, is enabled by the Spirit then to love others in the same way. It trusts God in behalf of the One who is loved, hoping to the end, praying to the end, that God will extend mercy in that person's behalf. And this means that love means nothing if we are not a people who are specific in love. I'm sure many of us can sit here and say, I love people. And we mean that in this vague, general way. But this love here that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 was not a docile love, was it? It is not a love that sits in mediocrity. It is a love that is creatively looking for specific ways to display that love to other people. It is a love that is innovative. It is a love that is thinking about how can I apply Calvary love to others. It's not generic, is what we're saying here. The world has that, don't they? Just love everybody. It is a specific love. Paul saying that love that believes the best about everything and everyone, that doesn't cease to have faith, is why it can endure. That's, he, he's, not, he's, not, he's not saying that's, that this means that we, we always just trust everybody around us. Because we know that we can't trust everybody around us, right? But it means that we trust the One who calls us to love others and live out that love as a reflection of our trust in Him. That's why He says this in verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It doesn't give up, it doesn't quit, it doesn't die, it doesn't come to extinction. It perseveres, it endures through the challenges of life. One person said, like Christ on the cross, love endures scorn, Failure and gratitude. It sees Christ multiplied in me. That's the character of love. That's why Paul can say in verse 31 Yet show I to you a more excellent way. The very spiritual gifts in chapter 12, as important as they are, as highly as Paul values them, in many ways those can be, those can be duplicated by unbelievers, can't they? This quality of love cannot be. is why Jesus himself declares it to be the distinguishing characteristic of his followers as we saw last Sunday. It is this quality of love he assumes when he says, "All men will know that you are my disciples if you are have love for one another." This is the essential characteristic, uh, uh, irreplaceable characteristic in Christianity. Canadian Bible teacher of years gone by, Oswald Sanders, would take 1 Corinthians thirteen as he discipled other believers, and he would have them read it three ways. And the first way you would have them read and 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 put in the put in the instead of charity, say Christ. Christ suffers long and is kind. Christ does not envy. Christ doesn't parade himself. Christ is not puffed up. He does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. He does not provoke. Thinks no evil. He does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then he would have his disciple put his name in there. Jamie does not suffer long and is unkind. Jamie envies. Jamie parades himself. Jamie is puffed up, behaves rudely, seeks his own interests, is easily provoked, thinks evil. Does not rejoice in truth, but rejoices in iniquity. Does not bear all things, or believes all things, or hopes all things, or endures all things. And then he would have them write it the third way and bring the two together. The power in Christ in Jamie suffers long in his kind. The power of Christ in Jamie does not envy. The power of Christ in Jamie does not parade himself, does not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. The power of Christ through the Holy Spirit in Jamie bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Put your name in there. The first way shows the perfections of God. Perfect love, right? The second way shows how I fall short. The third way shows what God does to make me like His Son. So as you've heard this passage this morning, and perhaps you're tempted to think, I'm glad they're hearing it. What are the descriptions of what love is or what love is not? As the Holy Spirit say, that's it. That's where you're lacking. And you can't do it. But I have given you all things to become like my Father. I put my Holy Spirit in you to prune away these branches so that you may bear fruit in these areas. What is it? I know what it is in my life. No doubt about it. What is it in yours? Where it is the Holy Spirit saying, this is where you're sinning. This is why you are not filled with the Spirit, controlled by God. This is who I am. This is what I've done. And this is what I want to make you.